Hey everyone, I hope you guys are doing well today. I know in our conversations with people over the last week that it seems that most people, I mean I hope you're feeling very positive and full of beans today, but that most people are quite tired and weary, maybe sad, maybe angry, confused about what has been going on in our country over the last 10 days. I'm just pretty worn down after over a year of lockdown and just all the realities of COVID on top of that. So I just want to say to you, if that's you, um, we're here. If you need help, if you need support at this time, reach out to someone in the church. Let us know if we can help you or encourage you or point you to Jesus in any way. Last week, if you did miss it, I preached a, a sermon, which really was a pastoral response, just a message to try and help us to ground ourselves in God's word and, and to look to him in the midst of what we're going through in our city and in our country. So if you did miss that, I want to encourage you to go back and check that out. And also, if you are feeling weary right now, um, I preached a sermon the, the first Sunday of this year on the prayer of lament. And uh, lament is a gift to us, uh, to be able to come to God with doubt and confusion and questions and anger, saying, God, where are you? What, what are you doing? Why aren't you moving in this way? To come to God with uh, our pain and our hurt when we're just full, you know, when you're saturated and, and weary with what is going on in the world, uh, when you've got compassion fatigue. Uh, the prayer of lament is a gift that we come before God in faith and we vomit out what's inside of us. We, we pour it out. We, we ask our questions and God meets us in that place. So maybe you can check out both of those sermons. But if there is a way that we can support you, let us know. But I just want to take a moment before we get into the scripture for today, just to pray for us and to pray for you where you're at. So Lord, I just ask you for Harbour City and any friends who are joining in and listening today. Lord, I ask you for us who are weary or tired or drained or angry or sad, that you would come and meet with us and comfort us where we are. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are a comforter. And we pray for peace now. Lord, we know that you're a wonderful counselor and we ask you to counsel us now with the counsel that we need. Lord, we know that you are a great king and we pray that we would trust in you as our rock and refuge at this time. Lord, whatever our situation is, our story, our need, our emotional uh, situation, we just ask you to come and be with us and meet with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today our plan is to finish up our Eat This Book series. I say our plan, there's a bit of an asterisk there because as James 4 teaches us, we should say God willing behind any one of those things. And I guess this last year and a half has probably taught us that better than anything else. So God willing, this is the last part of our Eat This Book series, but who knows, maybe we'll keep going for another week or two. But my hope is that over the last couple of weeks, as we have done this on Sundays, as we've had training nights, as we put out resources, as we've discussed this in life groups, that actually your view of the Bible has changed and developed and grown, and that your love for and value of the scriptures has increased. Um, I know for me, uh, my story with the Bible has changed significantly over the years. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, I started going to church when I was 12. I think most of you know my family aren't really Christian. So some of them have become over the years. But at 12, I was told I should read the Bible, so I started. Started every day to read a little bit of the Bible, depending on, uh, I guess, what mood I was in. I'd read a little bit of the scriptures, but I, I did what I was supposed to do. But I did that with probably a bad view of what the Bible was and a poor understanding of what should happen as I read the Bible. So I don't think I got the most out of the scriptures for years. 
And I think I started out always reading the Bible uh, as a moral book that I expected to show me right and wrong and how to be a good person. I saw the Bible probably in the way many people do as a spiritual encyclopedia that I would flip through and I could find the answers and the stories or, or explanation about all the different topics of life. But what happened is, as I came to read the Bible, I realized that my expectation of what this book should be and what I was reading and its narratives and stories and chapters in different books just didn't line up. I had this cognitive dissonance going on. I thought the Bible should be this, but in my experience of the Bible and what was happening inside of it and its characters and the interactions was a completely different thing. And that's what struck me the most, is that not everyone in the Bible was an example for us to follow. In fact, every single character in the Bible, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New, every character in the Bible was flawed and sinful and broken and imperfect in some way or some ways. And I'm amazed at this. I mean, the Bible airs everyone's dirty laundry for us to see and relate to and understand. It's going to be awkward in heaven one day. We're going to meet these characters from the scriptures. And we know about their darkest moments, their, their failings, their struggles, their sins. And we're going to have to talk to them about that, have, have these awkward interactions. But the Bible does that. And I so appreciate it. Because rather than holding up all of these perfect men and women as examples for us to follow, it shows us real people, humans, men and women like you and I with struggles and need for grace and failings and mistakes and mess-ups, people that you and I can relate to. But as a kid, that really shocked and confused me. For instance, if we start at the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the first family, we, we kind of wondered to ourselves, well, what is going on here? The parents, Adam and Eve, they had one command that God called them to keep. Just don't eat from that tree in the garden. You can do anything else. And I'm sure like many of you, you've been to botanic gardens. It's a huge garden. If I lived there and God had said to me, hey, Grant, you see that tree? Just don't eat from that. I can't imagine me breaking that. But Adam and Eve disobey God. They listen to the voice of the devil. They kind of go on his team, Satan, and they eat from the tree. And they sin, and sin enters into mankind. So the first couple, the first people have disobeyed God. And then their son, the first naturally born human, because Adam and Eve are made by God. This, this boy Cain, he does one of the worst things you can imagine, and he kills his brother Abel. And when we look at this and we read this story, we think, well, these are the first humans to live. What does this mean to teach us about humanity? And what does this mean to teach us about biblical family? Well, if you go like a little bit further on, what about David? You know, this child prodigy from a young age called by God to his purposes. David is the guy who kills Goliath. This huge giant with a sword. David comes at him with a sling and a stone and he kills him. And he, he brings victory to the people of God. David is God's man of power for the hour. But we see as time goes on in the life of David that he doesn't carry on in that trajectory. In fact, David, uh, depending on how you read the story, either commits adultery with or rapes Bathsheba, this woman who is part of his kingdom. And when she's pregnant with his child, he calls her husband to go and sleep with his wife. But his, uh, her husband is out at war. He's in the army. He, he's faithful to his king. So he won't go and be comforted by his wife. So David sends him to the front line and has him killed to cover over his own shame. And I read the story and I thought, but David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. How can a man like that murder him, murder Uriah, sleep with or rape his wife Bathsheba? How can that be? What about Abraham? Abraham is called the father of the faith in the scriptures. 
But what we see when we are introduced to him at the beginning of Genesis is that he's a moon worshipper, not interested in Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible at all. In fact, God pursues him. God calls him. God goes after him and says, come and follow me, Abraham. And he does. But Abraham is also a liar. And he doesn't just tell these small white lies. In fact, he lies at his wife's expense. What Abraham does as they go into a new place is that he lies to the rulers or kings who ask about his wife and says, no, 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 she's not my wife. She's my sister. He's worried for his own life. To protect himself, he puts his wife in harm's way. What are we meant to learn from this passage and that story? Are we learning about biblical husbanding here? What is going on in Abraham's story? What about his grandson Jacob, who was also a liar, or Rachel, who was a thief, or Moses, who was a murderer and had a big anger problem, or Noah, who got drunk, or Solomon, the world's wisest ever man, who seems to be a sex addict or at least had huge amounts of sexual partners. And that's without us even getting through the whole Old Testament or into the characters of the New. I think a lot of what we see in the lives of these characters, these heroes of the faith, seems to be sinful and wrong, not something that we want to learn from or emulate. See, these people are very human, they're very flawed, they're very imperfect. They make mistakes, they fail, they disobey God, they go their own way, do their own thing. And we see that their sin hurts them and those around them. We, we see from their stories the effects of sin on people and mankind. And some of these characters who start out so well in their passion and zeal for God end up finishing so badly. And as a young person coming to the Bible, and maybe you're in the same place, I didn't understand this for the longest time because it didn't make any sense. I mean, I honestly felt like I could write a better version of the Bible to help people to follow God and to be a good person because this scripture, this book, this library of books didn't make sense to me in helping me to follow God until I understood this. The reason for our confusion with the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it compromises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. In other words, the Bible doesn't give us a good uh, God at the top of a moral ladder saying, if you try hard to summon up your strength and live right, you can make it up. Instead, the Bible repeatedly shows us weak people who don't deserve God's grace, don't seek it, and don't appreciate it even after they have received it. That is the great biblical story arc into which every individual scriptural narrative fits. Or in other words, the Bible isn't a story about good and bad people and how to be one of the good ones, but instead it's a story about Jesus, the only good one, the only perfect example in the Bible. You see, there's Jesus and then there's everyone else and we're in this camp. And the story of the Bible is his story. He's the main character. It's all about him. He is our savior, the one who saves us from our sins and gives us that grace. And he's our example, the one whose footsteps we follow in. And the story of the Bible is about him, but also the story of history is his story too. And each one of us are characters in the big story of God in the world. See, the Bible isn't the self-help guide, which is there to help you and I to live our best life, to to be good and successful and, and for everything to go right. That's not what it is. The Bible exists to help us to know Jesus and to know his story. 
and these flawed and imperfect characters I've been speaking about so far, they show us ourselves, they reveal our own sin, our own struggles, and they show us our desperate need for Jesus and his grace in our lives. You might remember this quote from the beginning of the series. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story, which leads us to Jesus. And at the end of the series, we've come to Jesus today. And what I want to do, uh, talking today, really the sermon is on Jesus in the Bible, is to give you three points about Jesus and the scriptures. And we're going to start with something that's obvious. It's actually something we've talked about in the series already, but it's such an important foundation for our own engagement with the Bible. And it's this. Jesus was and is a big Bible guy. Jesus loves the Bible. Remember, I said that Jesus was a teacher of the scriptures, and I I think we sometimes don't think about this. You know, we think of Jesus as the healer, Jesus as the savior, some of the big uh, pictures of him throughout the scriptures. But Jesus went town to town, city to city, and he taught the Bible to people. That's what he did. Taryn Williams says, Jesus as a boy, like all Jewish boys, most likely memorized the entire first five books of the Bible and much of the rest of the Old Testament. And we see with Jesus as he's preaching and answering questions and just discipling people that he is constantly quoting scripture. Jesus is full of the Bible and it just naturally pours out of him. But there's also an irony to this. We've got to think of Jesus who is God in the flesh. And Jesus, when we see him in the New Testament, when he's preaching and when he's having conversations with people and answering their questions, he quotes the Bible rather than speaking on his own authority, which seems funny to me. You know, he quotes his own words, the words of God that have been written down by people like us. David and Moses and others who've written down the the words of God into the scriptures. And now Jesus, rather than speaking on his own authority, speaks quoting the words of scripture to answer people's questions and to give authority to the ideas and points that he's making. And we see that and we have to say, wow, clearly there is a huge importance to the word of God. Clearly, the Bible is not man's idea. It's God's idea because God is behind it. So what does Jesus have to say about the Bible? Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Harbor City, if we worship Jesus as God, then we have to, like Jesus, accept the Bible as the word of God. If we are disciples of Jesus, then we need to have a really key central place for the Bible in our lives and discipleship because Jesus does and Jesus did. You see, we trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus and we submit ourselves to its teaching because it's his teaching. We don't believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God because of what it says. We believe that the Bible is inspired and God's word and authoritative over our lives because Jesus says that. And we believe in Jesus. We trust in Jesus when he says these things. So Harbor City, we want to be a Bible people because we want to be like Jesus. We want to follow in his footsteps and be like him. And Jesus was a big Bible guy. So as we come to the end of the series, I want to say to you, if you haven't done it yet, can you take your next step with the Bible? Whatever that looks like for you. 
We've put a bunch of resources online for you. You can find them on our website. We put out blog posts with resources that can just help you to learn more or answer your questions. I think the Bible Project in particular is a really helpful website with intros to each book of the Bible, uh, videos and podcasts and blog posts and different themes and topics in the scriptures. It's a great place to start. It also has an amazing reading plan and app that you can go through to engage the Bible for yourself. We also put two training videos up on YouTube, really just helping you with the, the basics, Bible 101 and Lectio Divina, how to really read the Bible and engage with God. Go and check that stuff out. But maybe most basically, if you haven't done this yet, go and buy a Bible or download a Bible app or get your Bible off the shelf, put it right by your bed so you see it all the time. Make it a daily habit to read it every day, include it in your life, and then prayerfully read the scriptures and meditate on them, and then apply them to your life. Whoever you are, wherever you're at in your relationship with Jesus, can I encourage you to take whatever that next step is in engaging with the Bible. And we're not doing this to earn God's love. We're not doing this to, to try and be seen as good by God, to be good enough to, to earn His love or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about in this series at all. You don't get brownie points with God by reading the Bible. That's not how Christianity or God works. But we want to do these things because we want to know Jesus and because we want to follow Him and do His work in the world. Secondly, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Michael Horton says, apart from Christ, the Bible is a closed book. Read with him at the center. It is the greatest story ever told. Now we can read the Bible for years, but read it the wrong way or read it in a way that's not very helpful. And I've made all of these mistakes. So if you're in this boat, we can relate, you know. But one of the things we can do is we can read the Bible doing the lucky dip approach. We just open anywhere. You pick either a chapter or a verse. You read that and you go... That's what God wanted me to hear today. I did that for a long time, uh, chapter by chapter, working through the Bible. It was hard for me to understand what was going on in this book. Also, what we can do is we can read the Bible as a book of rules and commands, which no one really wants to read. Or we can come to it expecting it to be a self-help manual that's going to help us to live our best life now. And listen, the Bible isn't any of those things. So reading it that way is wrong. And again, I've made all of those mistakes. So if that's you, I can relate to you and where you're at right now. But when we come to the Bible in any of those ways, we come with unhelpful lenses that, that hinder us from seeing the scriptures and their teaching in the right way. They kind of miscolor or, or twist or distort what we're reading to try and put it into a category that actually the Bible doesn't fit inside of. But when we realize that the whole Bible is about Jesus, and when we come to the scriptures with the lens of Jesus, then everything in the Bible comes alive and makes more sense. And in Luke 24, we read this passage after Jesus' crucifixion, and he's actually risen from the dead, although his disciples don't really know that or believe that yet. But there's this incredible encounter between Jesus and some of his disciples around the Bible and what it is that I think will help us today. Luke 24, verse 13 to 28. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. 
one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some woman from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer all these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Harbor City, what we see here is that the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, not just sections of it, the whole Bible is about Jesus. What happens next is just so funny. I mean, Jesus has really joined these two as a bit of a hitchhiker on their walk from town to town. Probably about a two, two and a half uh, hour walk, seven mile walk. And at the end of it, you know, they invite Jesus to join them for dinner. So he does. They sit down. And there's this moment where they're about to eat, where they all realize they have this revelation. This is Jesus. They've been kept from recognizing him. But now all of a sudden they realize the guy who interpreted the Bible for them is Jesus. And they exclaim in verse 32, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? I'm sure so many of you who've been in church for a while have experienced that moment. Either someone is preaching like this, or you're reading the Bible for yourself, or you're in life group, or you're having a discussion, or listening to a sermon podcast, whatever it is, and it's like the scriptures come alive. Someone's teaching out of the Bible, expounding, explaining, expanding them for you, and you just get it. It's like a moment of revelation, but also a moment of worship. Let's say they're talking about Jesus' grace. And you realize how good God is, you know, how kind God is, how loving God is towards us. Or maybe they're speaking about uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And you see that Jesus is this suffering, servant-hearted king. And you're shocked. Actually, he's the lamb who is slain, but he's the lion. You know, he, he's the regal royal king of kings and lord of lords who reigns over everything, but who died in our place on the cross. And your heart starts to jump. Or, or someone's teaching what Jesus taught about something. You, you know, the, the kingdom ways of Jesus. And you start to think to yourself, this makes so much sense. This is not the way of our world. It's countercultural. It's like flipped on its head. But this is good and true and, and melts my heart. I want to live this way. Or you hear something else about him. Jesus is teaching his will, his word, his ways. And you think, I love this Man, I love Jesus. And your heart burns within you and you want to worship and praise him because he is good. That's what they experienced that day as they walked on the road to Emmaus. And as they're talking about these things, Jesus pops back a few verses later and continues to teach them and says this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witness of these things and look, I'm sending you what my father promised as for you stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. As I was preparing for this today, something that jumped out at me from these passages is that Jesus both opened their minds to understand the scriptures and I even pray today as we look at this passage that your mind would be opened to see this more clearly. But on top of that, he also taught them in a way that their hearts burned inside of them with passion for God. What we see here is actually the scriptures as they come alive, they are intellectual, they're they're logical and reasonable, and they make sense. But at the same time, the, the, the truth of God actually fills us with worship and wonder and awe and love for him. Both our hearts burn and our minds are open to the truth of Jesus in his word. And what happens after he does this? after he opens their minds, after their hearts burn, is he sends them out as witnesses to the world to basically share what he's just shared with them about himself and his kingdom and his ways. He says, okay, now you go out and you go and make disciples. You witness, you attest what you have seen and heard so that others might know me and follow me and live out my ways and obey my scriptures and take this message to the whole earth. That's why you and I are here in Durban today, why we have a church, why we're doing this this morning, because the message has gone out. Witnesses have taken the word of God and they have shared it. And you and I are called to do the same thing too. Let me end this Luke 24 passage with this. A few years ago, I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller talking about this passage and talking about what Jesus was doing here, talking about what the sermon must have looked like that he shared with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it changed my life. It it honestly changed my understanding of the Bible and Jesus and the way we read the scriptures and preach them and and all of those things. So I want to share a little clip with you that I hope will help you to engage with it and understand Luke 24 better. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. 
There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. I hope that really helps you to understand what's going on in Luke 24 and how the whole Bible and really history, everything is about Jesus and pointing us to him. But let me end the message with this final point. Don't just study and know the Bible. Come to Jesus. Don't just learn the scriptures, but respond to him. And Harbor City, I know we've been in a series on the Bible for a long time now, really hoping that this will go into us and shape us as a community. That actually we would know the Bible, what they are, that we would read them, that we would know how to know God through them. But if at the end of the series we all read the Bible daily, memorize and quote scriptures, if we all have good doctrine and theology, could ace a theology exam and can answer hard ethical and contemporary theological questions, but don't love God and don't love people, then we've completely missed the point of this whole series. You see, this series hasn't been about the Bible as the end, that we want to be a people that read and know the scriptures. No, no, no. The series has been about receiving the Bible as a gift from God, something that God wants us to have, to know and follow him, to become his people and be a part of his kingdom work in the world. The Bible isn't an end, it's a means to the end, which is us knowing God and doing his work in the world. And you see, the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day, they knew the scriptures better than any of us. They had the Old Testament memorized. They obeyed each command religiously. They were incredibly moral people. They could out-Bible any one of us. They could Bible you under the table any day of the week. They knew the word of God. But they were also jerks. They knew the right answers, but they were so unlike the God of the Bible, at least most of them. And Jesus, who confronted these religious leaders often, he says to them, looking them in the eyes one time, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Harbor City, we can know the scriptures and not know Jesus. We can have good theology, but not be disciples. We can know all of the right answers, but not know God. 
And we see here that that's exactly what these Pharisees did. They knew the Bible so well, and the whole Bible is about Jesus, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't come to Jesus. They didn't follow Jesus. And you and I can fall into that same trap. We can become so knowledgeable about the Bible. We can have great theology and pass any theology test, but not actually have our hearts warmed by the reality of who he is and be changed by him and not follow him and not imitate him and not choose his ways and not respond to people in the way that he would. Not love God and love people and instead just be cold, intelligent, knowledgeable jerks. Harvest City, we want to eat this book. Now, we want to pour over the scriptures and, like I said, chew on them so that they become mush that nourishes us and helps us to grow and mature spiritually. But we don't want to just know this book and not come to Jesus. We love the Bible because we love Jesus and these are his words. We don't love the Bible alone. So let me end with this. After Jesus preached a really tough sermon in John chapter 6, and I mean, a lot of the crowd around him, and the, even the disciples who'd been following him for a while, they left him and went their own way. They, they chose another way that they didn't want to follow him anymore. Jesus has this amazing encounter with his 12 disciples in John 6. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Harbour City, being a Christian, following Jesus, living out his ways is not easy. But where else can you go to find the truth? Where else can you go to find salvation? Where else can you go to know God and find life, the life that is truly life? It's only in Jesus. It's only in his words. So Harvest City, let's be a church that eats this book. Let's be a church that eats this book because we want to know him. Let's be a church that eats this book because we want to be like Jesus and do his work in this world. Let's be a church that eats this book because of who he is, the Holy One of God. And let's be a church that loves the scriptures because we know that his words are the words of eternal life. Jesus, as we end this series, I pray that you would put a permanent mark on us as individuals and as a church, that we would be Bible people, that we would eat this book, and that the Word of God would become a priority in our daily lives. But I pray, Lord, that we would not be like the Pharisees, that we would not just become knowledgeable, that we wouldn't just know the Bible well and then self-righteously look down on others. I pray, Lord God, that you would make us more like you. Jesus, help us to know you and to follow you and become like you and help us to love in the way that you love, to share your truth in the way that you would have us and to do your work. We even ask, Lord God, right now I ask for some people, open their minds to understand your word and I pray that our hearts burn with the truth of your word. Lord, help us by the power of your spirit to be disciples wholeheartedly. Help us to know your word and to live it out. And as we finish this series even now, Lord, let us be changed by this series to be your people in Durban at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.